Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much. Uh, we have with us today Jana DeCristofaro. She is a licensed clinical social worker, is the coordinator of Children's Grief Services at the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Jana facilitates peer support groups for children, teens, and young adults who have experienced the death of a parent, sibling, close friend, or primary caregiver. She is also the host of the Dear Dougie podcast, which focuses on opening up the often avoided conversation about grief. Jana, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. How is the weather in Portland? Uh, I'd say pretty average for us, which is cloudy. Uh, We did see the sun yesterday for the first time in probably two months. So everyone went a little wild yesterday, but we're back to normal gray skies today. It's good to have to hear you um, again. Last time we talked, it was on your podcast and had the opportunity to come on and share a little bit about grief dreams. And for those listeners, if they wanted to go on that, uh, it's episode 48. And But the problem is when I get interviewed, I never get to know more about the host because I'm getting the questions asked. So it's nice that you're on the podcast so we can ask the questions to you and to get more of your story and your journey and and why you're doing what you're doing, because I think what you're doing is pretty amazing. So I guess the first question is, you know, you are a licensed clinical social worker. How did you get into that field? Uh, when I was a really young kid, I, I had the sense I always wanted to be a counselor or therapist in some way. I didn't really know what that meant to be a counselor or a therapist, but I figured it meant listening to your friends' secrets and staying up late talking about things, because I was eight at the time. And then um, I went through high school and college with that goal in mind. And then after college, I spent the summer waiting tables. And suddenly I thought, oh my gosh, I really don't enjoy listening to people and their problems in that capacity. So I took a little detour, tried out a few other things, and eventually ended up uh, volunteering with a program for teenagers as a mentor. And that really reconnected me to my original thoughts about being a counselor, because I realized that talking to teenagers and talking to adults about what's going on for them emotionally and physically is a lot different than listening to restaurant patrons complain that their salad plate is not cold enough. So I was grateful to reconnect with that. That's good. So what led you, once you got the degree, why did you decide to go to the Dougie Center or work with children? Was there a specific um, thing that occurred? It seems like as with many things in, in life, or at least in my life, it happened sort of accidentally and not with a lot of strategy or planning on my part. I had trained to do more traditional outpatient counseling therapy. And after I graduated with my master's, I was applying for jobs and things just weren't feeling like the right fit. So I decided, you know what, maybe after all this time, I'm really not cut out for working with people in this way. So I'll stick with research, I'm good with numbers. And about six months into working as a researcher, I was like, my heart is really sad and I really miss interacting with people. So I contacted the Dougie Center to try out being a volunteer. And from the first moment of the volunteer training, when I heard about the model that the Dougie Center uses and their approach to working with people, I was like, oh, I'm so grateful. There's a place that exists where their um, way of being with people, it matches what I feel works well for me, which is to trust that people know what they need to create a safe space and a container to listen 
but not to be confrontational or try to direct people or force them in any particular direction in their in their own journey. Mm-hmm. I volunteered with them for about six months, and then a job came free, and I applied thinking they would never hire me, but thankfully they did, and that was 15 years ago. Wow. So you stay with the same company. A lot of people switch companies after a couple of years. Um, so it's nice that you're able to stick with the same company. They're doing something right for you want to sort of be a part of them uh, in that organization. That's great. Can you tell us a little about what the Dougie Center is? Sure. We are a peer support group program, uh, which means that we run support groups for kids, teenagers, uh, and their adult family members, as well as groups for young adults. And they are open to kids and teens and young adults who have had a parent, a sibling, a close friend, or someone else who was really uh, important in raising them uh, if they've had that person die in their life. We also have a program called Pathways for Families when someone in the family has an advanced serious illness. So there's groups for kids and teens, caregivers, and the person with an illness. So that's basically what we provide are those peer support groups. They're ongoing, they're free of charge to families, and they offer people who are grieving and who are anticipating the death of someone an opportunity to be with others who are going through something similar, to find some community, connection, validation for what they're going through. Wow, that's amazing to hear that you you can offer, the center can offer free uh, support how do they get their funding? If like, cause usually things have a cost, right? So is there a lot of support from community or government? We get a tremendous amount of community support. We do not receive any government funding. So all of our funds come from individual donors, uh, from grants, foundations, organizations, but no government funding. Wow. That's amazing. So, you know, uh, kudos to all those people who are supporting it and uh, helping you guys out and to provide that space and that place for those who are grieving. So when it comes to, I guess, there's the children's, teens, young adults, are there differences in how you support them? Yes and no. It's a really hard question to answer. Our groups are structured pretty similarly, no matter how old the people who are coming to the group are. We always offer people an opportunity to say their name and share who died in their life and how that person or people died. They have a chance to engage in some conversation about that. Then we have a variety of creative expression rooms that the kids and the teens, unfortunately not the adults, have an opportunity to use. We have an art room, a hospital recreation room, a big energy room with foosball and air hockey, fan tray room, music room. There's tons and tons of different options for kids and teens to play, and then we always come back together to do some type of closing ritual. So I would say the biggest difference is how long the talking part lasts. So the kids who are three to five years old, their talk time is pretty short compared to the teens who might sit and talk a whole group session, which is an hour and a half. So yeah, it's the same but different. And is there any kind of, do you see any differences in in people who come to the center in the sense of gender? Like, do you see more uh, females? That's a hard one to call, too. I would say in the kid groups, it's pretty mixed. Um, in fact, in the, in the groups for kids who are 6 to 12, we almost tend to have more boys than girls, but that's always changing. And I think a lot of times that's because the adults are the ones who are connecting their kids with the W Center. And we tend to have more... Uh, moms bringing kids and dads bringing kids. 
but it's not a significant difference. In our groups for young adults, I would say it's it's a little bit more of a a bigger difference in terms of women who access our services versus men. It's very interesting, yeah, because when it comes to adults, like I I uh, I volunteer and. It's usually women that come for support, and so it's interesting how because I guess the parents are bringing them in, so the genders are more or less equal. I kind of like that. If only uh, I guess I had someone to bring me in back in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, oftentimes, not always, but there are occasions when men who reach out to us for services through our young adult groups are are calling us initially because. A, a woman in their life has said, hey, I really think it would be helpful if you went to a grief support group. That's not everybody, but there's been a number of people who found their way to us that way. That's pretty special. And um, so I have, a, I have a question. If for those listening and who live in communities that don't have something amazing like the Dougie Center, what are just a few tips that you would uh, give to, you know, let's just say uh, parents to help their kids or you know either preteens or teens deal with the grief process well the first thing i would encourage people to do is to go to our website and look at our we have a searchable directory of programs similar to the dougie center all around the world so a good first step is just to check and see is there something close by to my community Um, i know there's a number of programs in canada all across the u.s and germany and haiti and um, there's a variety of different places so that would be step one, just to see if there is a program like ours that you could connect with in your own community. And then we also have a series of resources on our website. There's a tip sheet that we've designed for um, parents who are supporting or other caregivers supporting kids and teens. And we outline all sorts of ideas for how to talk with kids about the fact that someone died, how to support them physically and emotionally. So those are some other great resources. And you know, just our, our basic uh, suggestions for people is to be open and honest with kids about the fact that somebody in their life died. Uh, oftentimes, as adults, our instinct is to protect kids and to keep information from them. And we've heard from kids over the years that having clear information about what happened from people they care about and trust is really important. So telling them honestly what happened, letting them ask their questions, and doing your best to answer those or to try to find out the information if you can. And then also providing a lot of choices. When someone in our life dies, it's something we, for the most part, had no choice in at all. And so life can feel very much like it's happening to us rather than us having any agency. So allowing kids to make choices about simple day-to-day things like, do you want this breakfast cereal or this breakfast cereal? Do you want to wear shorts or pants? If it's safe, you know, maybe not shorts if there's two feet of snow outside. But anything you can do to let kids have some choice in their life, those are some really great places to start. And what, what does that do for a child it, during the grieving process if, if they're provided with that type of choice? I think it goes a long way to let kids know that they can still have an effect on their life when something so huge and transformational happened to them. So they have an opportunity to have a say and some agency in how their day looks and regain some sense of control in their lives. That's great. Thank you so much. And we will definitely share the website where people can go to. Um, uh, at the end of the podcast, we'll share all your contacts so people can go get those resources that they need. Um, and please reach out um, to the website and, and 
and, and find what you need in order to help, uh, you know, your young families, your teens and kids around you to grieve uh, in the way that uh, is best for them. Um, so moving on, why did you decide to start the podcast? Gosh, I can't even remember. <laughs> it's been around just about two years now. And, you know, we've talked for years about how can we reach people who don't have access to come to the Dutton Center or maybe people who were six and their dad died and it was 1947 and they never had a chance to talk about it with anybody. You know, how can we reach people who either can't currently come to the Dougie Center or live in places where the Dougie Center or a program like ours is not available? Or for people who just, support groups are not their thing, right? It's not, it's not a fit for everybody to come into a room full of strangers and talk about really intense emotional aspects of your life. So that's kind of, that was sort of the, the seed for starting the podcast. Excellent. So it started about two years ago. And um, what was the process like from beginning to where you guys are at now? Yeah, the podcast has changed a bit, I would say. It started off with myself and another staff member who happened to be the one that knew the technology of how we could actually create a podcast. And he would ask me questions and I would answer them. Um, But it was really just me relaying information that I've gathered throughout my time here at the W Center. And Slowly over time, Brendan, who was our co-host then, transitioned away from the podcast, and I started reaching out to people who have experienced a loss to come on and talk about their experience. So we have many more episodes that are really just narratives of other people who are grieving, offering their stories uh, as a gift to the audience who may listen and think, oh, I'm not alone. Somebody else has gone through what I've gone through. And then we also have episodes with myself and other staff people giving more, you know, suggestions and technical tips for supporting kids and teens through specific circumstances like Father's Day, Mother's Day, um, the winter holidays. We're about to record a series on uh, dealing with anger and grief. I like that. I like how you have these almost these two visions. One is to educate uh, families or people who are going through the process. The other one is to normalize the experience by having people on share about their loss. I think those two paths is, is, is I think it's great for that vision. And, you know, I have a feeling it's probably helping a lot of people. Is it weird not knowing if it's helping, you know, like, cause in a support group, you can see the change, but with the podcast, you don't really see anything unless you get an email. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I check our downloads all the time, kind of like checking your Instagram account for likes and uh, you know, we hope that the more people it reaches, that the more people are, are being served by it. Otherwise, people wouldn't keep listening. But yeah, it's pretty rare to get direct feedback. Although there are a lot of people who listen who are part of the Dougie Center community, either as volunteers or family members or my family members who listen to them and, and can give some more direct feedback about how an episode affected them. So do you feel more comfortable right now? Do you, do you like where it's going? Do you like what, or, and what are your plans for maybe the near future and how you want the podcast to develop? You know, right now we're considering whether or not we want to change the name of the podcast, which is a big deal to do that. So thinking about, you know, the name Dear Dougie came when we first started the podcast, thinking it would be mostly a Q&A where people would write in with questions and we would answer them on the podcast, but it, it's gone in such a different direction that we were contemplating whether we could change the name or it would be more clear that we're talking about grief. I mean, our title, Dear Dougie, doesn't really tell anybody anything. So there's some technical situations there that we are 
looking into. And then along with that, as, as we hopefully are able to get some better recording equipment, being able to record with groups of people, I'd love to have some episodes with actual kids and teens who want to be recorded and have a few of them talking as if they're in group. So those are two of my dreams right now for the podcast. Yeah, I like that, having kids on and to share their story. And even the name, it's interesting, but when you type grief in this, like any kind of podcast search engine, your thing does come up. So I'm thinking of grief in the bio part, right? Of like what the show is. Yeah, right now it says Dear Dougie Conversations about grief and loss. Um, so the word's in there for sure. But in terms of, you know, there's a, the other part of podcasting I never even considered is the the logo and the branding that goes with it. Dear Dougie's kind of hard to, from a graphic uh, design perspective, to capture it. So we were thinking about switching it to a name that would give rise to an, an easier to understand and convey what we do through the logo and the artwork. That's cool. Yeah, because it's a process, right? And especially rebranding. That's uh, it's its own new thing. Have you thought about putting your face on a logo that's kind of animated? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> not for me. I do not want my face associated. Oh. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> You have a very nice face. <laughs> Don't be shy. I'm a writer, so I'm all about let's just put some words up there. Maybe not even Im- any images. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so that's that's cool. So I'm glad you're you're doing that and said you're helping others. What what is it like when you first started? Because like for us, when we first started, we were just doing it like once a month, and we're trying to figure it out. Did you right off the bat like? do like had a goal like one episode per week it's one episode per week right uh we we started off with the thought that we would do one every other week and that went along okay for a while but as i've gotten more i've taken on more and more of the production aspects myself so now that i do all the content development the scheduling the recording the interviewing and all the editing and then all the post-production stuff Sometimes, depending on what the episode looks like, that can take a while. So um, there's times when we have two in a month, and there's times when we just have one in a month. Wow, good for you to be able to do all that. That's a lot. And hopefully, you're getting paid for this. <laughs> this is definitely part of my job, so I'm grateful for that too. And I'm very grateful to YouTube if I just Google how do I do this in the sound editing program I'm using, and there's usually a video of someone who's also figured out how to do it. That's pretty cool. I mean, we've broken up the podcast duties essentially where, you know, I, I will do the editing, a little bit, a lot of the sound stuff. Um, but Josh does a lot of the scheduling, a lot of the posting, a lot of the social media stuff. You know, he's, you know, pairing for different guests. So, and I can imagine it's, I mean, it's a lot of work for us as it is. We, you know, obviously we all have full-time jobs. We all do uh, different things during the day, but wow, that's kudos to you. That's amazing that you're even, <laughs> even do that. Like, Wow, I'm 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 shocked. Yeah, it's definitely not part of it was not part of my social work training how to do <laughs> podcast sound editing. So maybe it should go learn in the curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe it should go in the new curriculum that they have. So like can you tell us a little bit more about the episodes? How long are they? We try to keep the episodes to twenty minutes. Uh, occasionally they'll go on to about thirty, but our hope and goal was to keep it to about what I hear is the average commute. Because uh, a lot of times, if we're trying to reach adults who are now solo parenting kids, 
and dealing with their own grief, they are going to have a lot of time when they can sit down and just listen to an hour-long podcast. So we were hoping, like, drop a kid off at school, 20 minutes to your job or 20 minutes back home, that people could listen to a podcast in that short amount of time. That's pretty smart. I never really thought about that. Like, our the way we do the podcast is... It's almost like, yeah, 40 minutes because I think our commute, a lot of people who commute to Toronto and stuff and it's around 40 minutes. So I, I'm guessing you're just looking at, at it as a par- like a parental sort of thing. And that's cool because like that's something you do have to think about when you set up your, your vision of what the podcast needs to be. Moving forward uh, with, so you had the podcast and it's, you know, you have a vision for moving the future. So let's go maybe to your loss since it hasn't come up yet. Have you lost anyone? Now, before I started working at the Debbie Center, both of my grandparents died in the same year. My grandfather died from cancer. He was diagnosed and, and died within a month. And then nine months later, my grandmother, his wife, was hit and killed by a subway train. And we were never able to uh, determine for sure if she jumped in front of the train or was pushed in front of the train or slipped and fell. Uh, there was never any conclusive evidence about that. So those are the two deaths I experienced before I started working here. And since my time at the Dougie Center, I've had two close friends die. A friend of mine died uh, in 2014. She was hit and killed by a car in Thailand. And then a friend of mine who was a longtime volunteer at the Dougie Center died of cancer just a little over a year ago. Wow. So you had more loss than I think maybe most people have. What's the journey like from of your losses? Does it get easier when you lose more or is it just as difficult each one? That's a really interesting and and difficult question to answer. It's hard for me to really recollect what things were like when I was 15, you know, and how many of my grandparents die. Um, And I had a whole other loss that I forgot to mention. My aunt, their daughter, my only aunt on that side of the family, died of cancer um, in 2009. So all three people from that side of the family have died except for my mom. Um, so that, you know, that's just a different experience than, than a friend who I see on a pretty daily basis or a volunteer that I have a particular type of relationship with. So each one is so different. I think it's hard to, it's hard to know if, if the accumulation affects the grief in any way. Yeah, that's true, right? <laughs> it's, at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it, it is a tough question, but it, it came to mind. So I guess, you know, throughout your journey then, what kind of lessons have you learned from the different losses that, you know, maybe you may not have learned um, if they didn't occur? You know, trying to answer questions about my own loss makes me have a lot of empathy for people who are guests on my podcast because those are hard questions to answer. (laughs) Um, And I'm sorry, now I completely forgot the question. So on your grief journey so far, maybe what are some things you've learned about yourself, about life that maybe you may not have learned prior or if you didn't go through these, these, uh, these deaths? I think the part that stands out the most for me is that I seem to grieve very differently than most other people, um, particularly being in the role that I'm in here at the Deggie Center and being present for so many people's stories of loss and grief and seeing how effective they are on so many levels in their life. And for me, and I can't tell if this is an aspect of having worked here, so I've built up a lot of protection against the idea of loss, or if it's just who I am and how I process these things. But I tend to be very matter-of-fact about it. And at the moment I heard about every single one of these steps, even when I was a teenager, 
there was a moment, sometimes longer than others, but pretty brief, where I, I just had a sense of like, oh, yeah, of course that happened. Not even really a, that was supposed to happen, but just, okay, that happened. And then that quickly got consumed by emotional responses from myself and from other people. But it's just been interesting to me that that's been so consistent that every time I've heard the news, and I don't know if that's just an, an unplugging, like this is too much to take in, so I'm going to have this sort of disembodied response, or if it's truly a connection with, like, this is, this is happening and it's going to be okay. I'm not sure in that way. It's interesting because, you know, it sounds like you, you have the awareness to kind of see when, when a death happens, a loss happens close to you, you can kind of watch yourself go through these emotions and you can kind of piece it together as opposed to like if someone wasn't as familiar with grief and how to process it, you know, they, they, might, have, they might feel bombarded by some of the emotions or, or um, feelings that they might be getting. Do you, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I would say not being surprised by the things that are coming up certainly has a, an interesting opportunity to not have to wrestle so much with the confusion that comes up. You know, hear so many people being like, why am I angry? This doesn't make any sense to me. Or why am I so frustrated with everybody else? And putting a lot on themselves, feeling bad about that. I do think there's an element of being able to not necessarily skip it completely, but not engage with it as much. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I heard that. Oh yeah, that's normal. Oh, that's normal. Oh, that happens for people too. It's interesting. Do you ever get people who are shocked to see you in the state of grief because you work with the grief? So like uh, the bereaved. Um, so like, oh, like shouldn't you know how to work with it? Like, do you get anyone saying things like that? No, probably because I've I've never. I don't know if I've never, but I would I would venture to guess that if I were to if we were to ask people in my life what does Jana look like when she's grieving? They would say not any different than how she looks all the time. Uh, not that I'm constantly looking like I'm grieving, but that I'm probably not showing anything that people would associate with grief. Mm. Um, I think, in fact, people are still looking to me to, to model what it might look like to grieve, and they probably aren't seeing a lot that confirms their uh, assumptions or stereotypes about what grief looks like. Uh, I'm more likely to be in the role of comforting, listening, uh, asking questions, facilitating group processes with the the friends and family as well. So I do think people have an expectation that when there's a memorial service, that I'll be someone who will get up and say something and be able to, quote, unquote, keep it together or uh, crack a joke at the right time to sort of raise up the mood of the group or ask an open-ended question that will allow people to really open up about their experience. So I think it's more that people see me doing what I do in my work, in my personal life when somebody dies. Cool. That's interesting. I think I'm like that a little bit in my own personal life where I might not emote emotion outwardly as much in, in situations and especially tragedies, but I, I will process it inside internally and, and kind of work through it that way. Um, is, is there something that you do maybe on your own or alone to kind of get you into that, to allow yourself to kind of process those things? Like, do you go for hikes? Do you uh, maybe do yoga or something like that? That'll kind of help you do that. Like even in your day-to-day job, because you're taking in, you're empathizing, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to you give out with a lot of compassion to these people who are telling their grief stories. Like, do you do anything to kind of get you maybe centered again? There are a variety of things that I turn to to help just with, the work that I do, and I think many of those are 
still appropriate and effective when I'm dealing with my own grief as well. So lots and lots of physical activity. Um, occasionally talking with friends. Um, I found over the years that that's grown to be less and less effective or helpful in a way. Watching lots of cute animal videos and following all my favorite dogs on Instagram, honestly, <laughs> the thing that helps me the most. Um, talking animal movies, there's definitely a theme there for me. Um, and I think, you know, there's a few people in my life who I sort of in helping professions, but there's like a few people where I feel like, okay, these guys can handle it. Like they can hold, they can hold it <laughs> and let me have a little bit of an emotional expression. Uh, that's pretty rare though. That's interesting. Yeah, actually, but you know, people, right? Like what I'm, what I'm looking at is that you understand what people can hold. And so you're almost like a mother to the world. And those people that you don't feel can hold your suffering, you sort of don't put it on them. And you're sort of like yeah, almost absolutely. taking care of them in a way. That's interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people are like that. And I think what I heard children are like that also, like they'll uh, tend to like when they're grieving, they might not show it to their parents because their parents are grieving and they're trying to like save them in some way of, of pain. I think that is extremely true and common. And one of the reasons why coming to a support group situation or maybe working with an individual counselor, being around people who are not emotionally affected by this child's response or their needs can be really powerful for them. So they know they can come to group and talk about things that are challenging for them. And we're going to listen and reflect it back to them. And then we're not going to wake up the next day and look at them sympathetically, you know, because we're not part of their day-to-day life. So there's something really freeing, I think, for kids and teens and adults to be able to come and talk with people who are not going to be carrying the burden of what they've heard into their interactions with them. Yeah, it's so interesting. I like how you also talked about the the dogs. I I love watching animal videos. Like they <laughs> they just bring, they put a smile on your face, right? Like it's something I don't know, something adorable and cute about some of the things they do. I don't actually. I only follow one dog on Instagram. What's that dog, Sean? It's my dog. You can follow Jana. You're welcome to follow my dog. It's uh, Rumble Maximus on Instagram. Uh, he's a year and a half. So he's very cute. I mean, they're all cute. I love all dogs. Do you have any There's pets? One dog, uh, I um, co-parent a dog named Captain, who's a Boston Terrier, and he is—he's um, definitely great for providing a lot of entertainment and just—I don't know—there's just a being that you can share space with, and you have to take care of them and their physical needs, but you don't have to take care of them emotionally necessarily, and they don't have to take care yeah. of you emotionally. It's just a really, for me, a really nice, not so complex connection. Especially that breed, the very uh, energetic, upbeat, you know, and and playful. So you know that, and that's something that I've I do in, in in my life, in my day, and that really changes my mood for sure. You know, you when your dog comes and greets you at the door, they're nothing but joyous. They're happy, like they're shaking their butts, they're doing what they want to do. And then, like, how do you you come home from work? Maybe it's been a stressful, frustrating day, and then you know I get to see him, and then I take him for a walk, and then that walk, that process will help me purge that day and get me to feel better so you know animals are like that they're, they're such beautiful creatures and and you know it's great especially with dogs and you know if you have a cat too or anything like that you know it's great to have that relationship with them absolutely although i find myself spending a lot of time preemptively thinking about what's it going to be like when captain's not here what's it going to be like when captain dies 
um, and then worrying about them all the time. So there's the, the trade-off for me all the time of getting close, but also recognize being so surrounded by the reality of death makes it really challenging to not be forecasting how it's going to affect me, what's it going to be like. Yeah, that that is really interesting, especially when you're in the area of grief. You understand death can happen at any moment. And there's a point where you, you sort of you live in that sort of anxiety world where like, will they be there when I get home versus being grateful for the time you have. And it's like there's that fine balance from being one or the other. And so, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, but I just want to sort of uh, give you a time. Is there a, a favorite uh, Instagram pup that you want to shout out right now for all our listeners oh. to go follow? Well, this is a, it's an interesting time that we're talking about it because I follow one guy named Walter. His Instagram account is The Daily Walter. And Walter's um, been having a lot of health problems lately, and it looks like he, he might have cancer. He might have stomach cancer. And they, you know, they share that on the Instagram. And I was so upset, like probably more upset over hearing about Walter's diagnosis than I should be, and possibly more so than I am about things that are like part of my day-to-day life. This is a dog I've never met. I don't know. You know, he lives across the country, but he's just such a part of my daily self-care. And I was devastated thinking that, you know, that Walter's sick and that he might not be there anymore. So follow Daily Walter now while you can and send him lots of love because he he needs it. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder what that is. Like, I'm trying to think, like, like, I guess dogs are very similar in that you know they're generally most of them are kind of like you know i don't meet a lot of jerk dogs i really don't so like they're all generally happy cheerful and and, you know pretty loyal for the most part obviously if they've been raised right but people can be different like you know you can follow someone on instagram and they're just not a nice person but i think i think you can create that bond maybe a little more with a dog on instagram whereas, whereas that you kind of and you have a dog, so it makes you kind of like have that similarity and that connection because, you know, they're both dogs. Absolutely. I think- and Captain had cancer a few years ago, so it brought me right back to that experience and, you know, feeling a lot of empathy for Walter's parents across the country. And yeah, so it was like personal and not personal all at the same time. Yeah, and it brings me to like how people can get attached to celebrities or say to these people that we don't know physically, like you never met the person. But I'm guessing the time that they do pass, you will grieve in some way for their loss. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about often. Like it's disenfranchised in a way because you didn't, they weren't a part of your family or you never talked to them. But people get attached and people form bonds even when the, the other person doesn't even know. Definitely, especially if that person was um, instrumental in some significant way at a certain time in your life. You know, I think about music artists and how we often associate music with different events that have happened in our own life. And perhaps it was music that got us through a really hard time or music that was part of a really celebratory time of our life. So when that person dies and they're a representative of that music, that connects us back to our own memories. So in a sense, I feel like we're going to grieve that time in our life. Oh, interesting topic, I got to say. Um, but with the uh, the time things that, we, uh, that we've set, let's now move in transition towards dreams. So have you ever dreamt of anyone that you lost? I was thinking a lot about that in preparation for talking with you. And I'm imagining I have had dreams about the people who have died, but I cannot remember any of them. They don't stand out to me, even though I'm, I'm positive that I have. So I think it's interesting that they, they, they aren't present with me. 
Yeah, it's it is common. You know, I have those dreams too. Uh, I've only like so one of the dreams my father. So the ones where my father and me are just talking, as if it's like real life. Those are the ones I remember. There's other ones where he's in the background, or he's you know, I, there's something going on. I don't remember those ones. Like I'll maybe for the day, and then they sort of I can't recall them. But it's those ones that are profound that have sort of some meaning in my life. That those are the ones that I take forward with me. It just seems like you haven't had that kind of dream yet. No, the one dream that really stands out was I had a dream before my friend Nicole was hit and killed by a car. And it was a dream where Captain, my dog, got hit and killed by a car. And I woke up just with so much panic and so much anxiety about that. And and then I think it was two weeks or even a week later that I got the phone call that Nicole had been hit and killed by the car. And I have no idea if those things are connected, but that dream definitely stands out to me. That is, yeah, precognitive dreaming. It is interesting. And actually, they're my, an individual, a professor at Trent University wrote a book called Heads Up Dreaming. And it's all about that. And he did scientific studies and talked about different theories about the dream. So it's a thing out there. The issue is when people have dreams, they, uh, they can go overboard and they think everything's a precognitive dream and uh, can cause people to live in a lot of anxiety-filled world. Uh, so yeah, it, it, I don't know, but there seems to be something like that. And a lot of religions have these precognitive dreams. And so, yeah, maybe that was one. And that's interesting if it was. Did it help at all? Or did you, in your grief process? Because that's really what matters. I don't think it necessarily helped. um, Because I didn't make that, you know, because it was about Captain, not about Nicole. I think when Nicole died, there was some element of recognition is the word that comes to mind. And I don't really know what that means necessarily. So, again, I think it goes back to that moment that I have when I hear about the fact that somebody's died. And I think, okay, right, this was, this was going to happen. Um, and I think the dream was maybe just part added to that sense for me. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. And so if you could make a dream of one of the, or all of them, whatever, uh, one of your loved ones that have passed away, what would that dream look like to you? You know, I think a lot about my friend who was a, a longtime volunteer here at the Deggy Center. And when she died, it was about a year after her, um, we kind of have an animal theme going on here, but her, her cat, who was just her heart, uh, he had died about a year before she did. And I would just be so curious to know from Elaine in dream form if, if she's getting to hang out with Miel, her cat, now. And, oh, that's cute. You know, just to have a sense of, of where she is in her heart because she you know, she was ill for a long time. She had a life she was very much in love with. And, you know, she, I, I don't have a sense that there was a lot of peace for her as she headed towards the last bit of her life. And just curious where she is emotionally now with all of what's happened. And what environment would that be? Would it be at the Dougie Center or would you be out and about somewhere else? Oh, definitely not at the Dougie Center. I would picture <laughs> if Elaine is hanging out with Miel, I would picture her in a garden somewhere. She loved gardening and she loved flowers. And I know Miel loved to spend time out in their backyard. So I would definitely picture her someplace outside uh, surrounded by a lot of plants and flowers. That's nice. I like that. Sun shining. And then I guess, too, uh, what would be in the in the sky? Would it be sunny? Would it be a little cloudy? Would it be birds hanging out? 
you know, right now I'm thinking cloudy, but that might just be because it's been cloudy for months. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Um, I think, you know, Elaine was a professional photographer. So I have a sense mm -hmm. that a little bit of cloudy was best for taking photos. So I'm guessing it would be that type of weather. What, uh, what would she be wearing? Elaine was pretty infamous for her fry motorcycle boots and jeans and some type of cute vintage sweater, I would say. Nice. I like that. I can picture it now. A nice garden, a lot of flowers, meows there, trying to catch uh, <laughs> butterflies. Um, well, I, I assume there's butterflies there. <laughs> You know, I really hope you have that, and I hope that dream manifests tonight, and you can uh, ask her some questions, see how she's doing, and, you know, hang out a little bit, have some tea or uh, some margaritas, maybe. Well, thanks for the invitation to think about that. Absolutely. Um, well, Jana, we're going to wrap this up, but is there what are some of your contacts where people can, again, check out the Dougie Center, check out the resources that are available? Um, could you give those out, please? Absolutely. We are at um, dougy.org. That's our website. And you can find uh, Dear Dougie podcast there or in iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast platform that people use. And on our website, you'll find tip sheets for families and also links to our – we have guidebooks and workbooks available for sale for families and for kids. So our website is the best place to find us. Awesome. And where can they uh, download the podcast? Oh, right on they the website. Yep, on the website or in iTunes or Stitcher, any other podcast Excellent. platform. Perfect. Um, well, thank, thanks for coming on, doing this interview with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you for doing everything in your community of Portland, but also uh, all across the globe and people who are listening to the Dear Dougie podcast. And I hope... Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure everybody, you, you know, you've given a lot of people... Uh, some some hope, a lot of people, some resources to use in their own grieving process. Um, so thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me as a guest, and thanks for the work that both of you do with your podcast. Since Josh, you were a guest on our podcast, a lot of people have checked out some of your other episodes, and I've heard some really great uh, responses from people who are grateful that a lot's being done around grief and dreams. So thank you. Yeah, that was a really fun time and hopefully you get to come back and talk about children's grief dreams because that's one thing we didn't really get a chance to touch on and they have similar concerns that adults do and we haven't really had a chance to talk about it on here um, as much as I would have liked. But, you know, uh, hopefully, yeah, if you have any questions with that, you know, I'm always open to, to talk about those and if you get any of your own uh, people like teens or children reporting those dreams we would love to hear about them because the more information we have about these dreams and the concerns or the uh sometimes not the concerns but the 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 benefits sometimes um it always helps us grow and to understand the topic a little bit more well we look forward to it excellent um so please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. Um, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, and many other podcasting platforms. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. So we'd like to finish up with love and gratitude from us to you.
new beginning.